Now, the purpose of Peter's letter um, is to encourage people facing opposition that they actually do have the true grace of God and that they should stand fast in it. That's, that's how he closes out the letter. This is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. And he's encouraging them in that way. Uh, don't give in to the temptation to walk away from this Christian faith. Remember that all that we have. And we saw last week that a major strand in this letter is Peter's encouragement of how to suffer well. And that seems to be sort of the focus of 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 onwards. That, that phrase there, finally, although he's got a long way before the end of the letter, is flagging up that this is a, a new phase of the letter. That he's helping people to learn how to suffer well. And we considered last week that two, two, two parts of uh, that building up to this that you know, we saw from 3 verse 8 to 12. He basically says to them, don't be deflected from love. Yes, you're going to be opposed, but uh, don't retaliate, don't retreat, but actually uh, don't be deflected from loving people who oppose you. Let's remind ourselves, verse 9, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you are called so that you may inherit a blessing. So yes, we may experience opposition, hardship and difficulty and, uh, uh, and the cold uh, the cold shut door. But actually, let's not get angry, but let's continue loving and blessing. Next thing we looked at last week was don't be afraid to speak. Uh, particularly look at verse 15. Don't be frightened, but in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. Don't be afraid to speak. And then the next point that Peter makes is what we're going to focus on today is this. Don't doubt Christ's victory. Don't doubt Christ's victory. Let me read from uh, verse 17 to the end um, of chapter 3. It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. This is God's words. Now, admittedly, some of these verses are not the easiest to understand. Uh, Although I believe that they would have made perfect sense to the first um, readers of this letter. They wouldn't have been having puzzled expressions. They would have understood it completely. I think these verses are backing up what he says in verse 17. 
it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Now, I think this is a challenging thing for us because we all want to avoid suffering. We all want to avoid difficulties in our lives. But it is God's will that we should do good, even if doing good is going to cause us suffering. Suffering because we are Christians could in fact be God's will for our lives. Now that's quite a shocking thing to say, isn't it? Suffering because we are Christians could in fact be God's will for our lives. Now that's such a big statement. It's such a tough thing to hear that we need Peter to back this up with some real evidence. Uh, We need some real encouragement to see that that is the case. And uh, that's what he's got here. Um, There are three things here that he wants us to remember that will establish this this truth, that it is better to do God's will. uh, It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So three things I want us to look at today. Firstly, remember Christ's victory. Secondly, Remember Noah's salvation. And thirdly, remember your baptismal pledge. Those are the three things that help us to believe what he's saying in verse 17. So let's think about the first one. Remember Christ's victory. That is the main point in these verses. Actually, it's, it's quite obviously the main point, even though there's some verses in it that are a bit challenging to get our heads around. But everything here is pointing us to the unique work of Jesus Christ. These are verses that are pointing us to Jesus. Uh, Let's just see the skeleton of it. Verse 18, Christ suffered, it says there. And then Christ was made alive, verse 18. And then verse 19, Christ went and proclaimed. And then Christ went into heaven at God's right hand, verse 22. That's the outline of what he wants us to see. Keep looking at Christ. Remember what Christ has done. He suffered. He was made alive. He went and proclaimed. And he went into heaven and is at God's right hand. That is the the map of what's going on in these verses. And although we might struggle to comprehend how suffering could ever be uh, God's will for our lives as we are engaging in good, then let's remember the Lord Jesus Christ. It was, of course, God's will that he suffered. Now why was that? Remember why? The purpose was to achieve a victorious salvation. Verse 18. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. I don't know whether you're new to Christian things, if you just got invited off the street today, and this is the first time you've ever been in a church. And I want to say to you, have you ever considered Jesus Christ? Have you considered who he is and what he's done? And this is a, a beautiful nugget verse that points out the significance of his death for us. Our sins, our crooked nature, separate us from God. There is a huge chasm between a holy God and us. And what this verse is telling us is that God did something about it. God came into the world as a man, Jesus of Nazareth, and he came and lived a sinless life. 
He lived a righteous life. And yet he came to be a substitute for sinners. He came to offer his righteous life for our unrighteous, sinful lives. His cross, his death, is the bridge that crosses this chasm between the holiness of God and our sinfulness. He came to die as a substitute to bring us to God. We can now have a true and right relationship with God because Jesus Christ died once for all. The righteous, him the righteous one, for us the unrighteous ones to bring us to God. That, that is the, uh, the thing that he reminds us of him here. It was God's will that Christ suffered, even though he was righteous, he was suffering for doing good, but he did it because it had this purpose of achieving this victorious salvation. Now, two thoughts of application for that. First of all, have you received that salvation that he's brought about? If you're not here as a Christian, if you're here as a non-Christian, then have you, have you responded to Christ? He has made the way that you can, uh, a sinful person can, can come to know and be forgiven and be right with a holy God. Have you come to put your trust in him? Do so today if you haven't done it. He's made it possible. He's made the way known to bring you to God. If you're feeling distant from God, uh, disconnected from God, then know this. Christ has done everything possible that you can come to know God. You need to put your faith in him, the righteous one who suffered in the place of sinful, unrighteous people like you, like me. Do that today. But the second thing I want us to think about here is notice that this purposeful um, suffering that he was willing to suffer for doing good to bring you to God that actually this raises the possibility doesn't it that actually God may may bring suffering into our lives as a means by which we can connect people who are lost to this holy God now of course uh, our suffering doesn't achieve salvation uh, his suffering is clear. It was once and for all. It was unique. There's no need to repeat the sacrifice that was achieved for, for, for achieving the salvation. But maybe, maybe our suffering could be the context which uh, puts us connected to other people that might lead them. That we might be a means of bringing them to God. There's this amazing note as you read the Apostle Paul's writings. Even though he suffered so much, he keeps saying, I can rejoice. I can rejoice. And one of the reasons he can rejoice is that he knows in some way his suffering, his afflictions, his beatings, his shipwrecks, and all that stuff that went on was a means that God used so that he could bring the gospel to people so that they could be saved. Uh, we returned back last week to studying Philippians in our fellowship groups, didn't we? And do you remember early in the, in the book of Philippians, even though he's thrown in prison, he says he can rejoice. Because amazingly, going into prison has caused the gospel to advance right through the Roman guards and the prison community. And so he can even rejoice in that. In fact, him being thrown into prison has caused other Christians to be more bold about sharing the gospel outside of prison. And so he can rejoice in that. Paul was able to see that his suffering could actually be the means by which others could get connected to God. And, and, and that actually could be a reason why God wills suffering. 
I don't know whether you were here for the last Sunday of the year, but uh, Isabel Monaghan shared about her experience of, of, of breaking her hip. Now, that's a very painful and horrible thing to go through. But actually, she was full of joy because she saw that as an opportunity where she got to give out lots of Gideon's New Testaments and begin to talk to people about Jesus. And actually, had she not had that hip, oper- um, hip fracture and hip break, she wouldn't have met those people. And so she could see, actually, maybe that was part of God's plan. I wouldn't want my hip to be broken, but God used that so I could connect people to God. We have another member of our church that I was chatting to recently, and uh, she had a long period of, of just walking away from Christ. And what was it that brought her back to Christ? Well, it was witnessing the way her brother-in-law uh, died with cancer. As he faced his cancer treatment, as he faced those final days, he did so with such courage and hope that sprang from his faith in the gospel. That it just reminded her that she was walking away from the only hope in the face of death. And that was the means to bring her back to God. Yes, it could well be that, it, that God's will might be that we suffer in our lives. And one of the side things that might happen from that is it might be the means by which God uses to bring people to God. And so we should be aware of that. But that's actually not the main point here. The main point is that this salvation was achieved by a victorious defeat of sin, death, and all spiritual forces of evil. And I think that's what's going on. Remember, look, verse 18. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. But that's not the end of the story, is it? He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. Made alive uh, by the Spirit is a way of referring to his resurrection. In a number of places in the New Testament, this pairing of uh, body and spirit is not a kind of comparison between bodily existence and non-bodily existence. It is, a, it is a comparison of belonging, first of all, to this age, this earthly age, and then belonging to the age to come, the resurrection age, which is a, an age of bodily existence. Christ was raised with a real physical body. He was put to death in the flesh in the realm of this earthly human life, but was made alive in the spirit that he was made alive in resurrection life that goes on for eternity. And so the cross of Jesus Christ, uh, which appeared to be a defeat, was proved by the resurrection to actually be a victorious event over sin, that sin was paid for, over death itself, death could not hold him down, and over all spiritual forces of evil. And I get that bit from the next statement in verse 19. That's what I believe verse 19 is saying when it says, he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Now, I should let you know that these are some of the most difficult verses in First Peter and quite possibly in, in the New Testament. And they've puzzled the greatest minds in church history. Martin Luther, the famous uh, German uh, reformational chap, said this. Um, it is a wonderful text. A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament. So I do not know for certainty just what Peter means. And I spent a lot of time this week reading through the commentaries again, seeing all the options. Um, everyone agrees that the Christ who died was raised, so that's... There's no doubt about that. 
But then he did something involving proclaiming, and there's disagreement exactly about who the spirits in prison are, what Christ preached, when Christ preached it. There's about five major views. There's various sub-options, so that one commentator says there's about 180 options out there. But I'm going to tell you the definitive one today. (laughs) No, so all I say, I will tell you what I think it means, but I, I do so with a certain hesitancy that sharper brains than I have come to slightly different opinions. In fact, I've changed my view from last time I looked at this. I think that the original readers would have understood that when he speaks of the resurrected Christ preaching to the spirits in prison, it means this, that through his resurrection, Jesus Christ was proclaiming his total victory over evil, including uh, all spiritual evil. We're going to get on to Noah in a moment, but if you went to Genesis chapter 6, before you get to Noah, you get equally puzzling verses that talk about the sons of God kind of getting married to the daughters of, of men and having children and offspring. And again, it is one of those puzzling passages. Uh, but I think that it's referring to that. And in that, it's saying that actually there are spiritual forces of evil that somehow got involved with the generation before the flood and they helped corrupt and make it the most wicked generation of all. And that's why God brought the judgment of the flood. And that those spirits in prison are referring to the spiritual forces of evil that corrupted that generation, that in some way were locked up in prison, waiting for the, for, for the judgment day. And that Christ's resurrection uh, was the public moment of proclamation that he had defeated all spiritual forces of evil, and he would ultimately be overthrown. They would ultimately be overthrown. And I think that's clear as you go on to verse 22. So he suffered. He uh, was made alive. And then verse 22, he has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Now, if you want to ask me why I think all of that, come and speak to me afterwards. I've got more information than you'd ever want to know. Um, And I'd be happy to tell you why I think that. But I think that's what's going on. Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ does declare that sin has been paid for, that death is defeated, therefore all the power of the spiritual forces are nullified and void. He's victorious. He is Lord. He is at God's right hand. All angels, all authorities, all powers are under submission to him. And so when you think about that, if, if, if the resurrection of Christ proclaims that ultimately all evil is overthrown, that all evil is defeated, think about how that relates back to verse 17. It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. If that's the case, if evil is ultimately defeated and Jesus is at God's right hand in authority and power, you would be a fool to engage in evil now, wouldn't you? Because all evil is defeated and will be overthrown and judged on the final day. So why engage in evil acts when Jesus has been raised from the dead? More than that, to know that Christ is at God's right hand and that all authorities are under him, that means to say those who might cause us to suffer now, those who oppose us, are not beyond his control. That actually God is still in control, that Christ is in control even over evil. Evil never comes from God. 
But Christ's victory over evil lets us know that he even controls evil. And it is judged and one day will be eradicated in the judgment to come. And so whatever evil and wickedness comes against us in our lives, we need not fear because Christ is seated at God's right hand. All evil, uh, all spiritual forces of evil are overthrown and judged. We do not need to fear. Consistently, the gospel has gone into uh, communities that have lived in fear of evil spiritual forces. And the impact of the gospel is that fear is removed. For Christ is victorious. He is the resurrected King and Lord. But we should notice that the pathway that Jesus walked is the pathway that we are called to walk. And what is that pathway? It is the pathway of suffering now in this earthly, earthly life and glory to come. Look, look back at uh, chapter 1 and verse 10. I think this is vital that we understand this. Because there's a form of Christianity today that says, no, if you're really living as a Christian, you're never going to suffer, you're never going to have any difficulties, you're going to prosper. And it is utter nonsense, unbiblical. And you need this theology in your bones so that you are ready for the day when suffering comes, if it's not come already. Look at uh, 1 verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing. When he predicted, what did they predict? What did the prophets predict? The sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Now look at chapter 2, verse 21. To this you were called... Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you would follow in his footsteps. Well, as a Christian, simply it's someone who follows in the footsteps of Christ. And what is that? What are those footsteps? The footsteps are suffering now and then glory to follow. So look at chapter 4, verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Because you're going to enter into that glory. Or look at chapter 5, verse 1. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's suffering and one who will also share in the glory to be revealed. You see the pattern? Suffering now, glory to come. And look how he finishes the letter. Even if we experience loss in the here and now, this is the promise at the end of the letter. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Isn't that encouraging? I hope you realize that this is the realistic expectation of following in the footsteps of Christ. How did he go? Well, he suffered now and then he entered through resurrection into his glory. What will it mean to follow Christ? Well, my friends, if we've not experienced it yet, we may yet experience it. Suffering now, 
but hold on to your confidence in Christ, for the glory will certainly follow, for Christ is raised from the dead and has conquered all evil spiritual forces. He's conquered death. He's conquered sin. That's the point of these verses. Remember Christ's victory. This is the main point. So, in quicker steps now, let's finish off this section. Remember Christ's victory. Secondly, remember Noah's salvation. Verse 20. Who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. It's a very condensed argument. A rich source of theological doctorates. Uh, But I think he's saying, look, you can learn from the example of Noah. Noah and his family lived in a minority surrounded by a wicked, debased society. And yet God was able to save them from the judgment that came by the floods. In Peter's second letter, he describes uh, Noah as a preacher of righteousness to men and women who were alive at the time. And it seems as if as he's building his boat, what a ridiculous thing to build a boat in the middle of a sort of a desert type area. And say, what are you doing, Noah? I'm building a boat because God's going to judge the world. Uh, We're so wicked, he's going to bring his judgment. And we're building this boat because this is the only way we can be saved. You're an idiot, Noah. You can imagine the abuse that Noah would get as he builds this huge boat. No doubt he faced opposition, mockery and suffering. But you know what? Did he waver? No, he didn't. He kept believing what God said to him. And he kept building the boat, and so, in fact, was saved through the waters of judgment. Now, Jesus himself links the the, the awful destruction of the world in the flood with the reality of what's going to happen at the second coming of Christ. In Matthew chapter 24, keep your finger in 1 Peter, come to Matthew 24. You're doing so well looking at Bible verses today. Too many cross-references, but here we are. Matthew 24, you'll find that on page... Uh, 994. It's important to see that Jesus makes this link between Noah's day and the final day of God's judgment. Look at Matthew chapter 24, verse 37. As it was in the days of Noah, so it'll be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood... People were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. This is how it'll be at the coming of the Son of Man. So remember Christ's victory. Remember Noah's salvation, who believed God's message of the coming judgment. And endured the mockery, but kept going, and he was saved through that judgment. And lastly, remember your baptismal pledge. That's what it says in verse 21. And this water, back in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Again, this is a very condensed argument. But Peter's making a link between the flood of God's judgment in Noah's day 
and the waters of Christian baptism. Maybe you don't think about that as you see the pool full of water, linking back to the Noah's flood, but that's what Peter does here. He makes a link. Just as Noah and his family were saved through the waters of God's judgment by entering the ark, their Christian baptism is a reminder that they were saved from God's judgment through trusting the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the end of the sentence makes it clear. It is the resurrection that saves us. It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ that saves us. But what does it say, verse 21, that your baptism now saves you also? Why does it say that? Now, if we had the time, we don't. We could uh, look through the book of Acts, and you could start with Acts chapter 2, and you could see actually in Acts chapter 2, at the end of preaching to the crowd after Pentecost, Peter says this, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It seems in the New Testament, the way that people responded to the preaching of the gospel was not by coming down the front, not by filling out a card. It was by being baptized. So much so that um, he can write to these Christians as if their moment of baptism was their moment of salvation because that's how they responded. It was so close together. And Peter goes out of his way to show that uh, it's not magic that happens in, 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 as they get baptized. It's not the baptism itself that saves them. Uh, he says there, it is not the removal of dirt from the body. It's not the water that saves us. It's not a religious ritual that saves us. It says there, but a pledge of a good conscience before God. How can he say your baptism saves you? Well, because it is at your baptism that you are saying publicly that Christ is the Lord of your life. You're saying, uh, it's, it, for them it was the moment where they asked the Lord to cleanse them from their sins and to give them a clean conscience, which is something, incidentally, I don't think a baby can do. What is decisive here is the internal spiritual reality of somebody who is trusting Christ. And what's happening in the baptismal pool is just showing outwardly that reality. It is Christ's resurrection that saves us. So, as we perhaps begin to experience opposition, maybe the Lord will so change things in the UK that we'll begin to really start suffering. This was a city in which many people were martyred for their faith at one stage. Who knows, those days may come back again. Um, what will keep us faithful to Christ? We'll remember Christ's victory. He not only died for our salvation, he was raised. He's conquered sin, death, and all spiritual forces. He stands at God's right hand. Yes, he suffered, but he's in glory now. And if we follow Christ and willing to suffer him for him, we will also experience his glory, the glory of his victory over all things. Remember Noah. He was mocked for believing the, Christian, you know, the gospel of uh, the judgment and how to be saved through it. And we maybe be mocked. 
And God's patience before that day of judgment is not saying God's indifference. God's patience is like people just get on with their lives of ignoring him and rebelling against him. It's not that God doesn't care. God is patient longing that people would be saved. So remember Noah. Keep holding on to Christ, knowing that there is a day of judgment coming. And remember your baptismal pledge. In a moment, we're going to see Tendry and Anna uh, confessing Christ. And I hope this will be a day that will be marked in their minds. A day where they said, yes, I'm renouncing sin and evil and I want to live for Christ. He is Lord. I want to follow in his footsteps. And that is a day of, uh, of decision that where they decisively remember that that is the direction that they're heading. And so yes, it would be foolish to turn back to sin and wickedness. It would be foolish to let go of Christ when he has the ultimate victory. What about you? Uh, have you been baptized on profession of your faith? Have you got that moment where you look back and say, yes, I've, I've pledged before God. We're opening the pool again at the end of uh, next month. Why don't you think about coming along? Let us know. Come and speak to us. But wherever we are, I want to say to you this day, don't doubt Christ's victory. Keep trusting him. Let's pray.